I'm Eric Sundle with another Voice of Freedom program. This one is part two of the story of Odessa, the organization of the former members of the SS. It takes place partly in Europe, partly in the United States, partly in Latin America. It's a very interesting story. I tracked this eyewitness, this inside eyewitness, down virtually for 30 years after having had a conversation with Otto Skorzeny in Spain. Otto Skorzeny was Germany's famous commando leader and I had asked him about what Odessa really was because there were all these strange books coming out, the Odessa file and the uh, Belarus file and uh, there are all kinds of stories about Bormann being in Latin America and Hacienda is owned by big weak Nazis and so on and so naturally me being the post-war generation uh, I had to kind of sift the wheat from the chaff and I was very glad to find this lady and uh, she was quite ill and it was very good that I got her story on tape because sadly she died several weeks after and so what you're going to see here is some very unusual inside look at an organization which generally in the English-speaking, especially North American media, is made out to be some sinister, semi-terroristic outfit. In effect, it wasn't that at all. It was a kind of a help organization for former soldiers, former personnel of this elite force this first European army since the Crusades, Adolf Hitler's Waffen-SS and the SS generally were elite units and they were composed of some, I think it was 17 or 18 different nationalities. There were Indian troops in it, Muslim troops in it, Russian, French, Belgian, Flemish, Danish, Swedish, Norwegian. It, absolutely amazing the number of people that served voluntarily in these outfits and uh, just to give you two examples for instance the volunteers for the Waffen-SS from Denmark were twice as numerous as were volunteering for the Danish army and now you must understand we're talking here 1943 1944 when it was perfectly clear to thinking Europeans that the fight in the East against Bolshevism, especially in units like the SS, which were like the fire brigade of the German armed forces, was virtually a death sentence. And so it is an amazing story that even though they were going down to defeat the leadership of this branch of the German armed forces, had the foresight to set up a kind of an underground railroad by which they could get worthwhile people out of Europe to safety. A couple of times you have touched ever so slightly on the teeth and yes. the other wounds that they received in American concentration camps. Was that an exclusively American thing? Did you have also people from the Russian area, Russian occupation zone, British zone, that came with the same 
afflictions from, caused by interrogation? Or? From the, from the, we had, in my particular group, uh, although many of the officers and non-coms had fought on the Russian front, these particular youngsters were mostly from, from the Western Front because it was only later that they took the very young like that. And um, the worst of the lot were the French, as far as, as brutality went. The, from, just from what I, I gathered, there was the, the brutality of the, uh, from these American interrogations was more casual than, than, than planned, but it was a, oh, it's funny to kick the kid in the back. You know, and I had one youngster who had a fractured coccyx. He couldn't stand and he couldn't uh, sit for very long um, because he'd just been kicked in the pants so many times that uh, his, uh, his coccyx was, was fractured and not properly cared for. And many of them had been, you know, hit in the face or, or uh, uh, some of them who were from the 12th had been rather brutally interrogated and feeling that because they were young, they would be able to make them crack more easily, uh, beaten, deprived of sleep, uh, deprived of water, uh, kept in, in dark uh, dark cells with water on, on, on the floor, and told they were going to be hanged, and generally uh, rather dreadfully mistreated. And of course, I, I felt very badly about that. But uh, they, they didn't really, well, I can't say they loved their captors. They didn't hold the grudge against everybody from, say, the United States because they had been, they had been mistreated by a few. They, they were able, with some help, to put it into perspective that partly this is war and people do things in wartime that are unfortunate. And generally speaking, they they put it behind them and wanted to get on with their lives. It wasn't a, a grinding hatred. Ever, did you ever come across refugees from the East, people that had fled from the East, had been in Soviet Red Army clutches? Was the treatment different there? Yes, it was, of course, very different because that was practically deliberate in, intent to murder. Those We didn't in, in, in my group deal particularly with, with that we did meet and later in other activities I did meet some of them and found that the, the stories that they had to tell were almost incredibly appalling tales of, of privation and torture and um, rape and both hetero and homosexual and incredible treatment, mistreatment. If nothing, if nothing else, and this is that's, things are relative of, of starvation and privation and cold, of just incredible. Uh, the sort of thing that would make a horror movie look like a summer school picnic medical problems apart from the physical wounds of war, what were the chief medical complaints? Probably the worst one was survivor guilt. The feeling of 
I have seen so many of my friends and comrades die. Why, I'm not worthy of living. I should have died with them. Um, and that, of course, was made worse by the treatment that they that they received instead of anyone appreciating the sacrifices that they had made. It was pretty much given to think that they were scum and second-class citizens and to be spat upon and uh, told that everything that they'd fought for, uh, the officers that they trusted, the enlisted men who were like fathers to them, were, were fiends and, and, and devils incarnate, and that can be very confusing to somebody who's lived through a, a terrific emotional and physical trauma. And uh, the emotional problems, I would say that was probably the main one, Others were more or less standard. The, uh, the young man who, who has just seen too much horror and is trying to integrate himself back into a world in which he doesn't have to go out and pick up the dismembered piece, pieces of his friends. And it's not an easy transition. And of course, one of the things which sounds rather silly but is not was homesickness a terrible, terrible yearning for your, your home, and in many cases, home no longer existed. To your knowledge, when you were in Latin America, did the authorities there ever raid any of your schools, installations? Was there any political animosity? You know, these days we hear about uh, anti-German animosity at that, time, at that time, there really wasn't. Um, far from raiding us, we, we invited them. They were uh, our honored guests many times, and uh, some of them even sent their sons to, to our school to uh, uh, because they, they found the education there was, was so good. Um, it, it was well integrated into the community. The, people who were working were working perfectly above board and, and with great re mutual respect. The only thing that we did have to knuckle under a little bit too was the, under pressure from the uh, American authorities, uh, to put in a denazification class which made good Nazis out of all of us. <laughs> it was probably the stupidest thing that ever happened, but um, no, there was no, there was as I say, far from being raided, we, we, we would invite them to come, and uh, there was nothing going on that was subversive. We actually assisted the Brazilian government many times. And, and what level or what type of courses did they take? I mean, you said they were already in the army for up to two years, some of them, right? So they would be, what, in their early 20s? They would be, actually, some of them were as young as 18. They had, had volunteered at 16. And uh, most of them were 19, 20-year-olds. And uh, so they were in their last, most of them, the last two years of the gymnasium and uh, were preparing for the abitur, trying to uh, is it, Which is university entrance examination, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what we were trying to do, of course, was to to build on what on the skills that they had, and because they were very motivated, uh, they were nice, very nice, easy.
pupils to work with. They, they had a definite goal. They were obviously a lot more mature than your average high school students. And there was a mix. There were, as they say, some, some Brazilian students. There were students from the um, German community there who had not been, uh, who had been in Brazil through the war. So they, there was a, a, a mixture, but these young men were uh, given special, um, I don't want to say remedial classes, but classes to catch them up on what they had, had been missing and to help prepare them for this uh, examination. Now, Odessa paid for the teachers? Uh, in part, yes. The school was partly, uh, uh, Odessa paid the tuition of these young men which is not, they didn't, they didn't pay the teacher's salaries, they didn't own the school mm -hmm. or, or actually have any, any part except a sort of moral influence that this is what they would like their young men to, to be prepared for. And the school was perfectly happy to do that because it was basically a, a college preparatory school of, of that nature. And uh, so they, they in effect paid the tuition for young men and paid for any special programs, any rehabilitation programs that they had to have. Did you keep track of some of them? Yes. Yes, I still correspond with one of them. And you have a success story to tell? Oh yes, I have a lot of success stories. Uh, one of them became, um, uh, I'm not going to mention where, but he's a university professor. Uh, two of them are attorneys, uh, two of them are medical doctors, uh, one of them worked um, in, uh, in international relations for a large company and several of them started firms and are, uh, were able to, to take their technical um, abilities and with the education that they were provided, uh, parlay them into very successful businesses. You told us about the success stories of some of the people that went through this rehabilitation process. There were undoubtedly failures, and uh, can you tell us one or two of the stories that failed? Yes. Um, one of the boys um, was suffering from too heavy a load of guilt and grief salvaged. He, um, as a 18-year-old trooper, was in some of the heaviest fighting in Normandy, and they dis he discovered that his younger brother, who was just barely 16, had been sent up with a bunch of raw recruits who barely knew which end of the gun the bullet came out of, and he found him, and he was suffering from pneumonia. And Sepp had uh, liberated a leather jacket that belonged to one of the, uh, was actually was left in a, in a burned out tank, and their uh, chauffeur had told them never to wear any item of American clothing because if they were captured wearing it, then they would be shot. And he thought, well, if he took the American flag off the, off the sleeve, there was nothing, it was just a leather jacket, and their uniforms were in tatters, and they were cold, and his sergeant looked the other way and said, well, you know, probably not going to live very long. You might as well die happy. And when he found his brother suffering from pneumonia, he gave his brother the jacket. And shortly thereafter, they were captured by um, a 
an American unit and um, because his brother was wearing a piece of American clothing he was just shot, hauled out into the road and shot in front of his brother's eyes and Sepp never recovered from it. He, he, he tried, we tried, we had a suicide watch on him for a better part of the year but eventually he simply went into a very dangerous line of work and did one more dangerous thing after another until he, he was killed. And he was, we all felt that he actually committed suicide. And we had an, another youngster whose physical problems were so, so bad that uh, he actually couldn't live with them. He, he was, uh, he was wounded and uh, left with no potential as a man and felt that he's, he was useless and nothing that we could do seemed to help him. Uh, he did and as far as I know uh, spent most of his time after that in a, in a protected workshop type of environment where he was protected from in real life. He was not able to, to reintegrate but, but many uh, and there were of course, other naturally, I'm just talking about a very small sample that I, I don't know. Uh, the men that guided these young men then, were they, you know, they were former army people, I would assume? They were former SS officers and men. I see. So they, they had, of course, in civilian life, vocations, and then they joined the SS, and so they were back in civilian life, but with the military training under their belt? Yes. And the combination of military training and superior intelligence uh, made them excellent role models. And also, they were perhaps the most self-sacrificing, giving people I have ever known. They, in many cases, they had, their lives had been completely devastated. They had lost everything, their, their wives, their families, uh, everything was gone. The country was in ruins. Uh, and and yet they could think of other people and think of building for the future and giving these young people a chance at the future that was destroyed and denied them uh, and not doing it uh, we're not talking about people going around with wearing martyr crowns we're talking about uh, cheerful uh, positive uh, strongly focused men who, who really dedicated their lives to what they could salvage and rebuild. Now the marvel is that they had no longer any rank, they could no longer command, so it was all done by persuasion? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but rank and commandability is, is not a piece of stuff that you wear on your, on your shoulder. It's, it's innate. And these these men showed leadership in in every every small detail of life, um, and part of that leadership is the the German concern that an officer is father to his men and he's responsible for them, and that feeling persists through the whole and still continue to persist and. When you meet someone who is naturally, or, or has learned to be, a leader, you recognize this, and 
you, 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 you treasure it and you find that this, this person is one who will, who will guide you in the right way. These men in the SS were inculcated with the patriotism and the love of fatherland second to none. They sang all those patriotic songs and suddenly there was silence. How did you cope? How, how did you ease them from what was to the life in the future? How did you do that? Well, um, I won't say that uh, we did it with silence. Many, there are many uh, times when we would all get together and, and sing. Um, there was a voluntary assembly in the school and the students ran it and they got to choose and so of course many of the patriotic songs were sung at that time. And uh, a lot of their activities were, I won't say they were paramilitary, but they were quasi-military in form. Um, since it's very hard to get back to playing uh, straight soccer when you've You've had a lot of field training. You need the you need the continued exercise. And, and although the SS never had the mindless drill that the traditional uh, German army before World War One did, they they put a lot of emphasis on sports and uh, vigorous physical activities. So in that respect, the transition was was eased a little bit by the, the foresightedness of their initial training. Now you say that many of the men that were kind of chaperoning them were former officers. How did they cope with explaining to these young men the fatherland has lost, this is a devastating defeat? How did they reorient them, do you recall? Um, primarily by saying, yes, the fatherland has had a devastating defeat, but it will only be total catastrophe if we give up. What we must do is to build for the future, to save the values that are intrinsic in what you've been taught, of, of honor, of decency, of, of sacrifice, of love of country, of your personal debt to, to society continues. And you're not excused from that just because we've lost a few battles. Um, we have a tremendous job to do rebuilding the country, and that's that's where your focus must be, and that's your duty, and that's that's what's demanded of you as an SS man. So it was like civilian. It almost it almost was like a a civilian code of uh, saving the gene pool in a way. That was that was a large part of it. Yes the idea that this is the wealth of the nation and we can't squander it. We can't waste it in, in, in futile revenge or in going around hating or, or looking back and saying if only or, or whatever. The, the only salvation is going to be to build, build. One of the finest of, of leaders said make no monuments of cement or granite or bronze. Build instead a shining future and let that future and that future alone be monument to our dead. And that was pretty much the philosophy that was used.
the hope of a shining future for a Germany reborn, reborn honest and proud, and free to, to find its destiny. Now these are undoubtedly strange words coming from an American. Did, did you ever think that you lived a strange kind of a life? Well, I suppose so, yes. <laughs> In some ways I did. Certainly is not uh, an average life, but uh, it's been... I, I feel that I've had an opportunity to see what very few people have seen and to to be part of something great and something wonderful and something something constructive honest and decent and I am I am very proud of every second that I spent with them and, and worked with them so you have no regret for that li that part of your life absolutely not that was probably the most important part of my my existence. Um, uh, I, I feel that I can only feel uh, a rather humble pride in being allowed to be part of part of that great rebuilding process. Uh, I'm now looking at the end of my life and I think I'm called to account and people say, what did you do with your life? I can say I had a part in this. Your message to the younger generation? Don't lose your faith. Believe. Keep your ideals. Look to look to the to the leaders who will lead you positively those ideals of honor and truth and decency, uprightness. In the, in the, don't don't let don't let anyone destroy them. Don't you will hear them mocked and defiled. You'll be told that your race is 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 vile and filthy, and uh, you're born guilty. Don't believe this. Believe in your in your destiny. Believe believe that you can be an integral part of the future and that you owe it. This is, this is why you're here on this, on this planet, is to build this future and to, 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 to strengthen the race and not, not to weaken it, not to mock it. Keep your own life clean. Don't, don't be misled by those who would say, oh, it's not worthwhile, Take yours and get and run, and everybody's everybody's out for himself. This is this will bring you no happiness. And that's a message to not just the Germanic element. It's just your message to the young that's people. That's my message to the young people. You have a destiny. Don't don't sell it short. Thank you very much for this. <laughs>